Greetings from warm and humid Singapore. Great to see everyone back here and welcome back to episode four of our Bridging the Gulf public education series hosted by the Middle East Institute at Singapore. So today, before I begin, I'd like to first wish our Muslim friends Raid Mubarak wa kul am wa antumbi alf khair. Or from this part of the world, we say Salamat Hari Raya Adil Fitri. So today's episode is on Kuwait. Last week, we had Saudi Arabia and we had Miss Imana Hussein talking about Saudi Arabia. Today, today's episode on Kuwait will be graced by our distinguished speaker, Dr. Tahani Al-Turkate, who's also a dear friend of mine. Now, some may ask, you know, because Kuwait is one of the smaller Gulf states and, you know, what is our last, you know, interaction with Kuwait? And you may be interested to know that, you know, back in 2006, on the 18th of November, uh, Singapore's founding prime minister, uh, in his capacity as minister mentor, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, visited Kuwait and delivered a keynote speech at the National Bank of Kuwait Symposium. And some of the points, talking points that, that was in his speech was about, you know, self-reliance, about building a strong economy regardless of you know, the political system, whether it's democratic or dictatorial. So that was our brush with Kuwait at that time in 2006. And I suppose many of us know Kuwait through the Iraqi occupation, but do we know of what went on that the whole intensive campaigning to liberate the country? So with that, let me share uh, some slides to, to start off this introduction on on Kuwait. Right, so the first thing I wanted to talk about, and, and I'm going to take it back to, to the basics, is about the match list. Uh, the match list in, in the Gulf states, really, it's, it's a traditional uh, community salon, a council, um, and, and it, it occurs at the grassroots level, but also at a more formal level where tribal chiefs and sheikhs meet other members of the society. So majlis comes from the root Arabic uh, verb jalasa, which means to sit. So it's traditionally, a majlis is traditionally a male preserve when, when it comes to the Gulf states. And what happens is that, you know, um, it's still an ongoing part of, Gulf culture, in fact, Arab culture, to sit together uh, over coffee and to discuss and exchange news. So what I wanted to say is that in Kuwait, you know, uh, although in the rest of the Gulf states, the match list is really part of, uh, yes, it has, you know, accomplished um, that achievement that, that lends itself in the UNESCO intangible cultural heritage list. But in Kuwait, the match list is more affectionately known as the Diwania or Diwan for short. So what, how does this relate back to Kuwait? I think we, we talked about a bit about, uh, you know, some of the Gulf states maritime past and strong maritime links in the pre-oil era. And, and if you can see in your, on your screen now, uh, you see the, the kind of scenes that we, we, are, we were witnessing on the shore. So now you may ask, you know, what, what has the Majlis or the Diwanian got to do with that kind of maritime past? So and the, the first and most direct answer really was about 
um, addressing social needs. As you can see on the, on the right side of the screen, these were interconnected houses and very, uh, very closely knit community. So we have the Diwaniya or the match list acting as a meeting point or meeting space for different stakeholders in the maritime trade. It could be the pole divers, it could be the shipbuilders, it could be the sea captains, uh, and so on, and the merchants. So it was, it was really, the match list was a place of social need that addressed social need because whenever a problem arises, people, Kuwaitis, will go to their own uh, neighborhood Diwaniya or match list. So now this, this you know, practice and habit and custom continues even today. And I think they've taken it a bit further, the match list culture a bit further by you know, instilling it in, in uh, political trends. And at the grassroots, we see you know, um, whenever the, the elections are just around the corner, we see a lot of intense campaigning. And in these you know, kind of intense campaigning, these are conducted uh, in, in the diwanias where the candidates will go around and make their, their rounds in different family diwanias and to make their case, to give a speech and to try to convince, convince the voters. So as you can see on your screen and on the top, uh, the top left photo and the top right collage, you know, we, we, we see female parliamentary candidates. And yes, uh, since 2005, uh, females are allowed to run for office in Kuwait. And, and, and they also engage in, um, you know, Diwaniya campaigning or matchless campaigning, if you like. So, so this, this culture has gone into the political realm and as well as it, it stays rooted firmly in the family. As you can see in the bottom photo, this is a photo taken by me back in, back in 2014, where, you know, I visited one of the family, Diwan sitting on, on a specific day of the week and they meet regularly, of course, now, in, during a pandemic and during COVID-19 times, this, these kind of trends are going to be different. And last December, when Kuwait had held its own parliamentary elections, uh, you know, this was taken virtually. So now, you let, please allow me to, to take you back to the Iraqi occupation and, and how, how this whole match list culture and Diwaniya culture you know, links back to Kuwait. And, and we can see in these photos that you know, they were used as counter spaces and also spaces used by lobbying groups during the occupation itself. And, and the idea of a Diwaniya or match list in Kuwait was taken outside national borders. What I, meant, what I meant to say was that, you know, Kuwaitis took the Diwaniya idea into Dubai, into London, where they set up, you know, um, uh, a meeting point for lobbying groups to, to campaign, to liberate and free their own country from the Iraqis at, at this time. So after after Kuwait was liberated, you know, Diwaniyas became the sort of the precursor to a restored parliament. So it was the first step towards rebuilding um, the political system. But also what was more important and crucial to note was that before the Iraqi invasion, um, you know, when the parliament was unconstitutionally suspended in 1986, these this grassroots matchless or Diwaniyas became, you know, the alternative counter space against the government's uh, intention for an absolute rule. So going and finalizing my introduction here before I hand it over to our distinguished guest speaker, is that you know, we, we see this kind of tribal customs you know, that continue to be embedded and imbued in, in, in everyday social life, uh, not just uh, in the Gulf states, but specifically also in, in Kuwait, where there's a, there's a 
there is a trend of consultation, which is known as Shura. And there's also, you know, this whole idea about um, having the ruling family as the first among equals. And, and this kind of things governs not only social etiquette, but also political behavior. And if, if you look at the diagram on your, on your screen, it's kind of um, when this kind of match list was in a tent layout of the past. So in a tent, you know, in a tribal tent of the past, the sheikhs will be sitting in the, you know, in the inside of this tent. And, you know, the more distinguished a guest you are, the closer you are to the sheikh. So, of course, the, the closer you are to the exit, which means, of course, you obviously know your, your level of importance. So with that, I will finish off this introduction and then let me stop sharing my slides. And let me introduce our guest speaker for today, Dr. Tahani Alterkit. She is a researcher on politics focusing on the Gulf and also, of course, on her home country, Kuwait. She earned her PhD from Durham University in the UK, where she defended her thesis, the conceptual and constitutional underpinnings of Kuwait's system of government. Uh, before pursuing higher education, Dr. Altakate worked for Kuwait's public sector, serving her country as a diplomat and a consultant in public diplomacy. And she was also Kuwait's first female press attaché at the Embassy of Kuwait in Washington, DC. So it gives me great pleasure to hand it over to Dr. Tahani Al-Turkid. Dr. Al-Turkid, please, if you could kindly uh, turn on your video and unmute yourself. Thank you. Is my voice all right? Can you hear me? Yes, but your video is not turned on. Start my video. Great, that's great. You might want to go full screen with your, with your slides as well. Sure. Well, before I start the, uh, the webinar, I mean, I would like to thank you uh, for all the effort you've been putting in um, organizing uh, the, the series. I would like to um, send you all um, my thanks for attending um, this presentation and sending you also my my greetings from Kuwait. It's uh, it's still in the morning here, so uh, I wish you a great afternoon. And um, as my friend uh, Dr. Che, I mean, was talking about um, the concept of um, majlis or the duania, who. He's, he's our expert uh, on duaneers in Kuwait. I think you mentioned a very important point here where we are talking about things or some of the traditions we had in the past. And I am one of those believers that our past shapes our, our present. And today I would like to answer the five W's of, of Kuwaiti democracy. How it happened, um, was it, is it really the true democracy that we, we know, I mean, in, in the Western world? How does it look like, how it started? And um, to start with um, the early, I would say, steps for uh, Kuwait's political system.
we need to start with the early ruling traditions in Kuwait. So before 1752, there was not any form of political arrangement in Kuwait. People were dealing with each other on a family basis. Laws, regulations were issued in the absence of government institutions and different issues were solved cordially. 1752, the people of Kuwait appointed Sabah I as their first ruler. And um, the notables of Kuwait sought the Sheikh's residency in town while they were away on longer trips diving for purse. His presence was uh, a necessity to manage the town's affairs, solve internal disputes, and maintain peaceful ties with regional tribes, unlike the merchants who were constant travelers. According to Crystal, uh, Jill Crystal, uh, about appointing uh, Sabah the first, she states the diplomatic and political skills of, of Sabah the first helped him become a rising leader in Eastern Arabia. While the power of Beni Khalid waned, the sheikhs of Eastern Arabia nominated him on several events to resolve any possible frictions, and he succeeded securing cordial relations with neighboring tribes. So here, I mean, one of the main reasons is diplomatic and political skills Sabah the first had. According to a prominent historian in Kuwait, Saif Marzouk Shamlan, Mr. Shamlan believes that Sabah's father was known as influential and in control of his clan. While in Najd, Sabah appointment was therefore based on his father's reputation. And here we are talking about social status. Again, according to Ashamlan, from Sabah the first to Mubarak the Great, there were not any kind of privileges that used to distinguish the Sheikh from the people of Kuwait. The Sheikh position was like the head of a tribe who was equal to his own people. Some notables of Kuwait had more power and authority than the ruler himself. So after appointing Sabah the first in 1752, the notables decided to have an agreement with their own ruler. And Professor An-Najjar coined a term for that, describing it as a joint governing tradition. So what happened exactly is that the merchants agreed that the ruler would handle the daily affairs of the small town and the merchant would support him financially under one condition. The Sheikh would consult with the merchants on major decisions. This political form, formula created complete inter, uh, interdependence between the ruler and the, uh, and the root. Financially, um, the ruler was dependent on the merchants. And you might ask me how. For most Kuwaitis, diving workers represented their main source of income. Thus, the merchants were either ship captains or pearl merchants. When Sabah was appointed, they willingly agreed to pay the ruler a portion of the extracted revenues through custom dues, bare boat taxes, and personal loans. So this is exactly how the, the, joint, governing, uh, the joint governing tradition uh, was based. It was an agreement. It was a mutual uh, understanding between the ruler and the merchants. And this, to be honest, was 
was was the beginning that the uh, the ruler would would uh, would rule, and the the merchants uh, and the notables would get consulted. But things get different when Mubarak, uh, the great. Uh, came to power in 1896. He was regarded as an author uh, authoritarian by his people, but respected for his political intelligence and amb ambitions among the tribes of Arabia. During his reign, three major events changed the history of Kuwait. Number one, it's the ritual of succession. Before the reign of Mubarak, the tradition was that the wise, trustworthy, and elderly of a Sabah family convened after the death of the ruler to discuss and select the next heir, who must have been from a Sabah family, of course, regardless of his lineage. Mubarak came to power and he decided to have his sons and great sons to be the rulers of future Kuwait. And that's why in, in modern time, there are um, two faction of a Sabah family who, who, who share the ruling. It is either from uh, an Ahmed branch or a Salim branch. Breaking the tradition of joint governing was a characteristic of, of Mubarak al-Kabir reign. He left the notables with no longer in alliance. I mean, the notables were no longer in alliance with him. He stopped consulting with them by enforcing absolute decision and expected complete compliance. His actions, to be honest, irritated, I mean, not only the merchant, but also the working class who expressed their resentment on several occasions at import taxes being increased. The most important thing happened in his reign was signing the Anglo-Kuwaiti Treaty and Kuwait became a British protectorate. The treaty terminated all sorts of international competence among other leading world powers and was the most significant achievement of Mubarak's policy. In 1915, Mubarak passed away and his heirs were his sons, Jabir and Salim, both followed in the footsteps of their autocratic father. However, Jabir at least reduced the rate of import taxes, but the policies stayed the same. So I, I tried briefly, I mean, to give you, I mean, um, some hints and keys about how did uh, the, uh, the, the ruling tradition was. So it was joint governing, then came Mubarak the Great, which he demolished this tradition. But then things happened during the reign of Mubarak's son, Sheikh Salim, in 1921. And here I called it the road to national assembly, the road to have an elected parliament in the present time. So I always argue that, you know, the three, uh, the two councils preceded um, the, the, um, the constituent council in 1960, 61, uh, paved the way for what we call Kuwaiti democracy today. And I would like to take you in, um, in a tour about those uh, three councils that shaped democracy in Kuwait. The first one is the Shura Council. Um, some locals here call it the Council of 1921. 
Sheikh Salim passed away in 1921 and his heir was not identified. Before his death, the notables had become increasingly critical of Salim's autocratic rule. Again, we said that he followed the steps of his father. Aiming at restoring the joint governing tradition and to have a say in the town's affairs, which they missed during the reign of Mubarak and his son, the notables decided to have a reform campaign. And here the story um, begins. Five elites decided to lead a reform campaign and sign a petition. It included the following appeals. The House of As-Sabah should reconcile and find a pattern for succession to avoid interconflicts. Secondly, the notables limited As-Sabah family to three nominations from Mubarak lineage. Third, the notable's decision to confront the ruling family represented a, declara a declaration that running the town's affairs could not be autocratic anymore. And they called for restoring the old tradition of joint governing. Again, so it's all about this formula of joint governing that we need to be consulted. So the government should, should approve, I mean, and announce the ruler's name. The new ruler would be the head of the Shura Council, where Kuwaitis have the right to elect their representatives based on free and just elections. By consensus, a Sabah family selected Ahmed al-Jabir to be their 10th ruler of Kuwait. And here you can see his picture. The second council uh, is, is known as Council of uh, 1938 or the Legislative Council. Here we are talking about different political scene and the political events surrounding the 1938 council broke the alliance between the ruler and merchants and led the ruler to create new alliances with other factions in the society, mainly the tribes. Several regional and international events ignited turmoil in Kuwait, changing the political arrangement between the ruler and the merchants. Internationally, the Great Depression and the invention of Japanese cultured pearls in the late 1920s, which threatened the merchants' economic power. Again, they are um, uh, they are they they sell pearls, and they are merchants um, uh, and shipbuilders, leading to a confrontation with the, with the ruling family. Domestically, the oil discovery led the ruling family to change their tactics. By 1950, the ruling family had paid off its debts to the merchants and no longer would the ruler or the emirate rely on port dues paid by merchants. Moreover, increasing taxation rates and ignoring the corruption of leading, some leading uh, uh, members of the ruling family complicated the political scene. <clears throat> The 1938 council only lasted for six months, unfortunately. The ruler was not pleased with, with the new political arrangement, yet the council immediately began to run the country finances and dispute the emir and, and ruling family allowances. So here we are talking about a stronger council. The first council, it was appointed. The second council still was, was, uh, was appointed, but the, the members of the council changed their, tax, uh, their, tacti, uh, their tactics and they were more influential, I would say, in running the town's affairs. 
The last straw when the council requested the December check for the country's oil revenues. In response, the Emir Ahmed Al Jaber dissolved it on the 17th of December in 1938. The reign of Abdullah Salim is, um, is a very important and uh, reign in, for all Kuwaitis up to date. Uh, local described the 1950s as uh, the Renaissance era of Kuwait. This was the reign of Abdullah Salim, the 11th ruler of Kuwait, known as Abu Dastur, or the father of the constitution. During his rule, which is between 1950 to 1965, Kuwait adopted one of the most liberal constitutions in the Arab world, and it's the only one in the Gulf region, and established an elected parliament in 1963. The reign of Abdullah Salim was notable for lacking the tension which the previous council had endured. He restored the balance between the government and opposition and devoted all his uh, endeavors to the development and prosperity of Kuwait. At that time, a new wing of opposition began to emerge. It was a group of educated young men who believed in Arab nationalism, echoed the views of President Nasser of Egypt and hailed from different social classes in Kuwait. June 19, 1961, Kuwait gained its independence and was no longer a British protectorate. Few days later, the Iraqi president, Abdul Karim Qasim, refused to accept Kuwait as a sovereign and independent state. He asserted that Iraq's sovereignty over, over it and it threatened to use the force. Neither the international community nor the uh, Arab League welcomed these developments, but the threats helped trigger Kuwait's rapid adoption of democracy. Two months after Kuwait's independence, the Emir issued Decree 12, uh, 1961, calling for elections to the Constituent Council. Opening session was on um, January 20th, 1962, and they elected 20 members. The mission of the Constituent Council was to draft, discuss, and promulg uh, promulgate the new constitution of Kuwait. And here, the Constituent Council is very important council in Kuwait. Number one, it was elected. The 20 members, none of them were from uh, the ruling family, the ruling family were ministers, except for one who I will talk about later, who was a member and represented, uh, uh, he, was, he was the son of the Emir, member of the ruling, uh, son of the Emir, and he was uh, the Minister of Interior and representative of the ruling family in the Constitution Committee, which I'll talk about in a minute. Within the, constitu uh, the Constituent Council, five members were elected to a subcommittee known as the Constitution Committee to discuss the draft prepared by the constitutional experts from Egypt. The Constitution of Kuwait was rat ratified on time as is scheduled on 11 of November, 1962. And may I say that up to date, we celebrate um, uh, every 11-11, uh, uh, as Yom al the Constitution Day here in Kuwait. Among its uh, 183 articles, Article 6 of the Constitution of Kuwait enacts that the system of government in Kuwait shall be democratic, 
and uh, which sovereignty resides in the people, the source of all powers. Sovereignty shall be exercised in the manner specified in this constitution. At the same time, the constitution of Kuwait defines the state religion in Article 2 as the religion of the state is Islam and the Islamic Sharia shall be a main source of legislation. And this up to date raise a main, main question. So is Kuwait a democracy or is Sharia is a main source of legislation? Scholars conclude that what makes Kuwait's system of government unique, it's its hybridity. So when we look at the um, government system uh, of Kuwait, I can argue that it is democratic, hereditary, representative, parliamentary, and influential by its Islamic and Arabic heritage. I'm not gonna talk further, but I would like to conclude by saying that the development of Kuwait political system had undergone a great leap from simple tribal Shura tradition to a modern democratic parliamentary one. If you don't mind, am I good in time, Dr. Che? Yes, absolutely. Please go ahead. Okay. So I would like to share some pictures, if that is okay. Here is um, uh, the picture of Sheikh Abdullah Salim with the Speaker of the Constituent Council, Mr. Abdullah Al Ghanim. This is a very, um, I mean, like a, a, a very well-known picture. I mean, in Kuwait, I'm going to share with you the colorful one recently. Thanks to technology, they colored it. And here it's um, when Mr. Al Ghanim handed the last draft of the Constitution of Kuwait in 1962 uh, in preparation for the ratification uh, by Sheikh Abdullah Salim, the Emir of Kuwait at that time. Here, Sheikh Abdullah Salim is ratifying the first Constitution of Kuwait. And here, Sheikh Abdullah Salim at the Constituent Council reading the opening session. And this is uh, the Constituent Council, the ministers and members of the, yeah, and members of the Constituent Council. This is the Dr. Ahmed Al Khatib, Deputy Speaker. He is known to be um, one of the outspoken opposition leaders in Kuwait, and uh, apparently he's arguing one of his uh, <laughs> uh, one of his um, main arguments that shaped really in the uh, in the debates of democracy and Islamic Sharia, fighting for more freedoms and liberal perspective in, uh, in the constitution. This is my last picture, which is uh, the modern layout of uh, Kuwait National Assembly. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll be more than happy to start the discussion and have any question you have. Thank you, Dr. Atakate. Um, so now we've entered the Q&A segment of the webinar. So if you'd like to ask a question, you can of course uh, either raise your hand and we will unmute you and you can ask your question or you could also enter your question in the Zoom chat box, which I can then of course read it out uh, to Dr. Otterkit. So 
while our audience is uh, busy adjusting their thinking caps, uh, please allow me to um, start with the first question because uh, Tahani, you actually gave um, you know, a historical overview of what happened and, and you talked a bit about how Kuwait went from you know, the whole tribal custom of Shura joint governing and then it hit a point where you have a sheikh who is a tribal chief who was very autocratic in his style and then you have another two councils along the way. So, but Kuwait did not, you know, along for, for this period of time, did not actually adopt, uh, you know, or embrace democracy during this period. So it seems that, you know, what, had, what pushed them into down this path was um, external forces. And, and by external forces, I'm saying, um, you know, the, the Abdul Karim al-Qasim in Iraq. And could you tell us a bit more about this and also, you know, in the 90s with the Iraqi occupation, how did that change the dynamics in terms of Kuwaiti politics? So there's, there's two Iraqi claims on Kuwait and two periods of time, which I assume that there will be different circumstances. So how, how have things changed from then to the 90s? Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Che. Um, in 1962, it wasn't only the claims of Qasim of Iraq. Uh, so it's, I would say it accelerate things, it expedite things, and it urged um, uh, the, the government and the opposition to form a coalition and to put the national interest of Kuwait and Kuwait sovereignty as, as a priority. So, but we cannot also, you know, undermine the movement, the movement of reformists, those nationalists, the opposition, which started, I mean, in 1921, and it continued in 1938. And it developed, you know, to 1962, where we had an elected council preparing um, Kuwait to take its first steps to a modern, independent, uh, democratic state. So I need, uh, this, is, this is about 1962 and the claims of Qasim. Um, in 1991, I mean, here, I mean, we need, um, unfortunately, in 1986, the parliament was dissolved. And this is four years before um, uh, the invasion of Kuwait on August 2nd, 1990. So in the absence of the parliament, these regional developments happened. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait for seven months. And the opposition blamed the government for silencing their voices and not allowing them. I mean, again, I mean, if you would call it, I mean, the joint government. So again, in 1986, the joint government was, was demolished. It was cut again. So in the absence, I mean, again, in 1990, when the government and the opposition met in Jeddah um, and they decided you know, to have a coalition and alliance again with the promises from the government of Kuwait that uh, when, when Kuwait get liberated, the parliament is gonna be restored and more freedoms would be secured. And this is what happened. And I think there is a lesson here. We, I mean, the history of Kuwait and the three council I, um, we talked about, I talked about earlier, gave us a lesson that whenever, I mean, the joint governing, this mutual form, uh, this mutual understanding between the government and the parliament is absent, we are faced with a turmoil of 
um, political instability, absence uh, of um, uh, 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 the, the, the main form of representation in Kuwait and complications would happen. Thank you, Dr. Atukit. I think we have a couple of questions and I think the, we got the, the audience warmed up now. So we have one, the first question is from uh, Yeo Chen Zi, where he, he asked, you know, what, what happens to the merchant ruler equation that you talked about that the ruler relied on the notables and merchants for finance? Where do these merchants stand now? Are they in the pro-government camp or anti-government camp? So that, let's just start with this question first before I move on to the next. <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Well, um, the merchants at the beginning, I mean, uh, the sheikhs used to be reliant, I mean, or dependent financially on the, uh, they were reliant financially on, uh, uh, on the merchants. During the reign of Ahmed al-Jabr, it was the oil discovery. So there were, a new, um, uh, I mean, like the whole calculation has, has changed. So the sheikhs, the sheikhs are no longer in need of the merchants. So what they have is they have the oil revenues and they become independent, I mean, financially. That's why, you know, I mentioned something about paying off their debts and they're no longer in need of, uh, of the sheikhs. After, I mean, during the reign of, of Abdullah Salim, uh, things has changed. I mean, uh, Abdullah Salim came as, um, as, as a friend of the opposition and the political institution has emerged. So there were more, I would say more, um, um, the alliance was um, with the merchants, not very stable. Uh, so it was always up and down between the merchants. Uh, nowadays, I mean, if I'm going to talk about, you know, today at the present time, no, there is this alliance between the government and the merchants. But before it was broken. And that's why the, the sheikh, I mean, Ahmed al-Jabr, he started, I mean, like to have alliances with a new faction of the society and mainly the tribes. So it was up and down. It depends on, on, on who's the emir. Uh, but since, uh, I mean, like the oil discovery, since um, 1936, the whole thing has changed and the merchants are kind of, um, I'm not going to say they are not neglected at the moment. <laughs> and this is another, we can talk about this in another lecture. <laughs> but however, I mean, like at that time in the 30s uh, to the 1961, the whole thing has changed. Thank you, Tahani. And, and, and you talked a bit about uh, Sheikh Abdullah Salem as the emir was, was considered the father of the constitution. And so we have a question here, another question from our audience, uh, Elizabeth Monier, uh, who says, I would be interested to hear more about the question of Islam being the official religion and Sharia as the principal law. Could you summarize the arguments for and against? Also, could you give a sense of how controversial this was during the constitution drafting process, who were the main opponents to including this in the constitution? So that's quite a quite a heavy one. Uh, do you mind, uh, Dr. Che? I mean, to repeat the second part of the question. Yeah, that was who were the main opponents to including this in the constitution, including uh, including the Sharia as the principal law in the constitution. I think that was her question. Uh, 
Okay, okay. Thank you, Elizabeth, for your question. Um, it's, I must say that the debate of democracy and Sharia, I mean, I always say that it's uh, democracy versus Sharia. It is an ongoing debate up to date. Um, as Kuwait identified itself as an Arab Muslim state, at the same time, it was the only country in the Gulf region to adopt a liberal constitution, a democratic constitution. So are we a full democracy, like the same democracy um, you find um, in, in Europe, for instance, uh, or in the States? We are not, we are a hereditary emirate. So it is more of um, a constitutional monarchy. So there is a constitution and there is a parliament. But there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I would say Kuwait custom made its own political system, its own democracy, meaning that it needed at that time in 1961, after the independence, Kuwait decided to have the democracy. And I, I argued this in, in depth in, in, in my research, in my uh, PhD thesis, that democracy was something very new. So there was this debate that we are a conservative country, we are a Muslim country, would this contradict with our beliefs, with our traditions? Some members thought that, yes, it might. Others, um, I mean, find it that it would be um, a great thing to take the country forward. So there was this compromise in drafting the constitution of Kuwait. And that's why, I mean, like when, when, when you read uh, the, the, the articles of the constitution, you, 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 might, you might be confused. Uh, at the same time, it is considered unique because it, it is a combination of all those uh, traditions and systems. According to the constitution of Kuwait, members of parliament and the government have the right to amend the constitution after five years of its drafting, uh, uh, sorry, after its ratification. And the reformists at that time were promised because the speaker, I mean, I, um, I posted his picture, the deputy speaker, I mean, the, uh, Dr. Al-Khatib, for instance, he wasn't happy with the conclusion, with everything, I mean, with, with the last uh, draft of the constitution. Yet, there were these promises that, okay, the future will, will, will bring more, uh, uh, more freedoms, more openness to the constitution. So we are still, I mean, we are still divided between people who want to restrict the, the current constitution of Kuwait, which had never been amended before. And still there are those voices that we are ready to have a more uh, progressive, more, um, uh, a more liberal constitution. Uh, now I forget about who are the opponents, uh, who are the opponents? It's again, who are the opponents of, uh, I would say, more opponents? It's those who are threatened by modernity. It is by those who find that any steps further towards more freedoms, it's um, kind of uh, restriction to the religion or distortion of the religion and the Kuwaiti traditions. But to be honest, I do find that there are some moderate voices at the moment that would like to balance between both. And this is what we are um, working on at the moment in Kuwait, that we are trying to balance things. Nobody wants, I mean, like um, uh, being Arabic as my language, being Islam as my religion. 
I don't find it a threat or a contradiction to be uh, a democratic country. Still, as I mentioned earlier, that Kuwaiti democracy, it was um, designed to its culture, to its traditions. And I advise you to read the constitution. <laughs> you will find it very interesting. Thanks, Sahani. We got another question that, that builds on the, this whole hybridity of the system. Yeah. And, and this comes from uh, Brian Chang. And he, his question is, building on the last question, how has Kuwait's hybrid Sharia democracy addressed gender issues such as triple talaq divorce, violence against women, etc.? And I think this is a very, you know, it, this is uh, an issue that has been a hot topic, you know, of late. So uh, I, I hand it, it over is, to you. It is. I mean, uh, uh, it is a very important issue. And um, Article 29, uh, and I... I'm, I'm having the constitution within my hands. I'm reading this now. Uh, Article 29 states, all people are equal in human dignity and in public rights and duties before the law without distinction as to race, origin, la language, or religion. And um, by the way, we always use Article 29 as um, even when in, in gender issues, to be honest, as uh, a justification, and, and, and not a justification, as an evidence that the Constitution of Kuwait gave men and women all equal rights. So uh, this article uh, should end discrimination uh, and uh, provide all citizens of Kuwait equal rights. Thanks again, Tahani. We've got another question from uh, Valerie Go, and this is, I think, is a very uh, generic question about, you know, the late Sheikh Sabah. And could you describe the ruling style of the late Sheikh, and what was the harmony in the relationship between the parliament and the government back then? Of the late Sheikh Sabah, right? Yeah. Can you can you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Uh, could you describe the ruling style of the late Sheikh Sabah, and was there any harmony between the parliament and the government during his time? The reign of Sheikh Sabah, I mean, um, he is, um, I mean, I mentioned, I talked about Sheikh Abdullah Salim and uh, people of Kuwait uh, call him Abu Dastur, the father of constitution. Sheikh Sabah is known to be the father of a humanity. So um, he is, um, uh, the, I mean, he is known for his um, diplomatic endeavors uh, internationally. Uh, he uh, was awarded uh, the humanitarian uh, award from the UN for all the humanitarian uh, work uh, he had performed during his reign. Uh, at the same time, in turn, I mean, domestically, uh, and not only during the reign of Sheikh Sabah, it was always, I mean, like there is this friction and tension between the government and the parliament. So when I look at the, um, at the history uh, from 1967, the first dissolution of the parliament, I would say that there were more than 11 dissolutions of the parliament. So there is a sense of polit political instability. Uh, and 
this goes back to other uh, other reasons has to do some uh, relies this to um, uh, the um, the laws that are outdated some uh, there were some calls for amending the constitution and some voices was towards you know restricting uh, the constitution instead of liberating the constitution and uh, give um, i mean the state and 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 its people more more freedom so uh, briefly i would say that uh, the relationship it's always uh, uh, tense uh, and i'm working on something uh, related to, to to political instability and why kuwait was having a lot of dissolutions in in uh, in the in the past two decades or so Thanks, Tahani, and I'm sure you're also aware of uh, the recent, you know, tensions between the two branches of, of government, of and and of, of course a lot of personality attacks as well. Anyway, let's let's move on to the next question. This comes from my my colleague, um, Dr. Asif Shudra, and he says, "Your position as Kuwait's first female press attaché at the embassy in the U.S. makes you an important part of Kuwait's journey of democratization." especially in terms of gender equality. Could you please share more of such experience and how such developments in Kuwait itself have influenced the liberalization efforts in other GCC countries? Well, thank you very much uh, for this question. And um, it's, um, I don't think I am part of, uh, I, I, I really wish that I am, uh, I mean, someone who would who would bring more liberty and more freedom uh, and gender equality to the political scene in Kuwait. Um, but I, I must say that uh, I served in Washington DC between 2001 to 2007. At that time, women did not vote. So uh, I gained this position as the first female press attaché. So I have this diplomatic status, but at that time I couldn't vote, I never voted. And one of the main, main, major files I worked on during my tenure in, uh, in DC was women rights, Kuwaiti women rights, which I had the honor to work on, uh, to be honest. Um, it was challenging uh, as a woman, uh, like to have the diplomatic status and uh, I mean, this important job. At the same time, uh, I mean, you don't have the political influence uh, where you can run for parliament or uh, at least cast your vote every four years. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I was one of, uh, I was um, fortunate that I worked with um, see, some seniors who believed in women's rights and empowering women. So um, my mentor, uh, Professor Shafiq Gabra, who was the head of um, Kuwait Information Office that time, I mean, believed that uh, empowering women was a very important time before even, you know, women got the right to vote. So we need to empower women professionally, paving the way for them that we need to, we need to see them, I mean, like uh, occupying high position in order to give them and pave the way for them to be involved uh, in more uh, in politics uh, and in the political scene, mainly mainly running for parliament and, and casting the vote. Um, 
So uh, this is how, I mean, hopefully I answered your question, but the journey, I mean, my journey didn't stop over there. To be honest, after the PhD, it, um, it makes it more challenging. Uh, and now I'm based in Kuwait. So it is women, uh, women empowerment is still, uh, I have a big question mark on it. Uh, I think I will give Kuwait the credit for uh, giving women, uh, I mean, like the presidency in uh, being the first press attaché, the first ambassador, the first, uh, I mean, physician, the first engineer. But I would say I would like to see more empowerment for women in, in all fields. Uh, so we don't need to stop at one field. I would like to see many press attaches, many diplomats, which, which is happening, to be honest. But uh, I would be a bit selfish uh, since uh, your colleague mentioned the question. And I would like to see more women empowerment, especially that when it comes to population, we are, uh, we are the majority, uh, not our counterparts. <laughs> Thanks again, Tahani. We've got time for a couple more questions. And there's sure. one more from our audience, uh, from uh, Selena Tan. So her question is, in the immediate post-Iraqi occupation period, how challenging was it to restore the political system according to the constitution set out in the early 60s? To be honest, um, I don't find it, and this is my personal point of view, I don't find it, uh, I don't think it was challenging because it was promising for the opposition in 1990 uh, that when Kuwait get liberated, we will restore the parliament. The constitution of Kuwait enacts that Parliament should be in um, uh, uh, should be in progress every four years. Every four years, there should be elections. So before the invasion of Kuwait in 1990, in, uh, 1990, I think the constitution was put on hold and it was inactivated. So after the invasion, uh, the ruling family, the Emir of Kuwait, uh, uh, the late Sheikh Jabir Al Ahmed, promised that the parliament would be restored and according to the constitution of Kuwait, uh, it was enacted simultaneously, uh, sorry, directly on spot. Thanks again. And, and the next question comes from me because I, I, it suddenly came to my mind that I was asked this question you know, a couple of weeks back about you know, the current situation in Kuwait and the, the fact that there has been infighting between uh, the parliament and the government, but does politics, you know, have an impact on the business? You know, if you work, if you want to go into Kuwait and do business, does this kind of situation, you know, affect you know the the, the eco business ecosystem? So all yours. It's not only affecting the business in Kuwait. I think it's affecting, um, I mean, our our lives as as locals too. So it's um, the harmony, uh, the harmony between um, and the cooperation between uh, the two powers, the legislative and the executives, is very important. And this is what we are aiming at as nationals. Uh, this tension is affecting the prosperity and the, the development of the country at the moment. Uh, and I, and I do see this affecting the businesses. Uh, the government is giving a lot of, of promises, and I do see um, some changes in that perspective. But again, 
there is this sense of, uh, of instability, insecurity, uh, when it comes to domestic politics. And I think, uh, since you mentioned this, I think uh, there is, I didn't want to go in details, but there is something about separation. I mean, like in politics, we have separation of powers and uh, the powers, each power should be uh, independent and there shouldn't be any, um, uh, I, uh, I mean, interference uh, among, uh, among the three powers. And um, there is this thing about uh, how do we see our democracy? What is our definition of democracy? And this takes me back also, I mean, like to uh, one of the audience, I think it was Elizabeth asked about um, uh, the harmony, not the harmony, I mean, about the two powers. It's, it's very complicated that when we don't know whether we are a full democracy or we are not. Uh, there is, and here we are talking about identity issues, like, uh, does, does, demo, does democracy means that, you know, uh, we are still a democratic uh, a Muslim country? Would this violate any of the Islamic uh, traditions? Would this violate any of, um, uh, uh, I mean, like the Arab traditions? Uh, and uh, I always argue that we need to mature our definition of democracy in order to have this stability I blame, I mean, our, um, uh, the way we, we choose our representatives. So are we choosing them based on a tribal, based on social, um, cordial relationships? I mean, uh, or we are choosing the right candidate because he is gonna be the right representative, the, the qualified representative or member of parliament. Uh, and this is one, one of many, many reasons uh, that I don't want to, 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 to go on at the moment, but it is about how we define our political system. Uh, and you mentioned earlier about this thing about, um, there is a lot of like personal disputes. So it's not about political things. It's not about how, how uh, the powers are separated. Uh, how are we enacting uh, the articles of the constitution? It is more now sometimes all the disputes at the parliament, more or less, it's about personal stuff, about political agendas. And this is, we didn't see this, you know, after the liberation. We didn't see this in 1962, when, um, uh, 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 when, when the members of the Constituent Council drafted the constitution. We, we are not seeing any kind of compromising, uh, I mean, any harmony between the two powers, yet, I, I still believe in it as a Kuwaiti, as a scholar, I'm aiming in my field uh, as um, a responsible citizen uh, to restore, I mean, uh, not to restore, I mean like to work so hard to mature our definition of democracy and to protect it, of course. Thank you, thank you again. So we have one final question from the audience and this is from uh, Amir Hassan, Amir Hassan Munajemi. And his question is, is it right to think that after the 1990 invasion of Kuwait, the country's foreign policy has become more isolated and less involved in the regional affairs? Because I, I, I could immediately respond to this, but let me add a second part to this question. I would say is that, you know, 
how far has Kuwait looked eastwards towards Asia, you know, since the invasion, um, you know, towards China. And, and we all know that, you know, this has been a, a big headlines, you know, recently. So, so two parts, you know, has, has Kuwait become more isolated after the invasion and how far has it looked eastwards? All yours. I, I don't think that, um, I, I totally disagree, to be honest. Uh, if I was talking about the, the, the domestic uh, instability, uh, political instability, uh, on the contrary, I think Kuwait's foreign policy is very stable, very progressive. Uh, and I think the invasion gave us the platform uh, to foster more relationships with, with countries worldwide. That's why I don't have the number at the moment, but I am positive uh, that uh, the number of embassies worldwide, Kuwaiti embassies worldwide had enlarged. And as a matter of fact, I mean, there was, um, there was this debate a while ago about like, why are we going that far all over the world? Uh, and we need to reconsider, I mean, like um, to, uh, uh, to lessen the, the number of embassies uh, overseas. So the first part, I totally disagree. I think the invasion uh, gave us a lesson that diplomacy, diplomacy prevails. And if it wasn't for uh, Kuwait's foreign policy, Kuwait won't be liberated. Uh, and that's a fact. Uh, what about the, what was the, the second part? How far we went with- uh, Looking eastwards towards Asia. It had always, always, always been very strong. And um, I think it's uh, even after the invasion, it became uh, stronger. Before the invasion, you barely would hear that you would have, we'd have scholarship in China, in, in, in South Asia. Now we have students all over the world, you name it. Uh, and now, you know, one, I mean, to, to, as a diplomat, if you work in public diplomacy and in international relations, it is, um, uh, it would be a credit for you if you speak Chinese, if you speak uh, Japanese, if you, you, you know what I mean. So I think there was this expansion, not only in Asia, worldwide. And I don't think Kuwait want to, um, um, to change this policy. I think, uh, as I said, and I repeat that Kuwait's foreign policy is more stable, it's more, uh, more advanced when I compare it to uh, internal politics. Thank you again, Tahani. So we have come to the end of our one hour episode on Kuwait, and that was a really lively and robust discussion, a really good Q&A segment, if I may add. And so thank you to our audience for providing us with the questions. And also, of course, I have to thank sincerely our speaker for today, Dr. Tahani Al-Turkate, for gracing us with a knowledge on the Kuwait's domestic politics and also answering the questions from the audience. So with that, I would like to wish everyone Aikum Mubarak, of course. And I'll see you all two Fridays from now on the next episode on Oman. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you, Clemens. Thank you very much. Thank you all for having me.